Let's pray together. God, you are such a good God. We thank you that you are indeed our shepherd, that you lead us to still waters, that you make us lie down in green pastures. We thank you that all of the events of our lives um, are in your hands and that your position toward us is love and grace because of Jesus Christ. We praise you for those things. You're worthy of all of our praise and all of our honor and all of our adoration. And we confess that our hearts are not always as committed to you as they should be, as we would like them to be. But we give you praise and thanks that you are a God who is ever faithful, steadfast in your love, and committed to us. Lord, I ask that as we look at your word this morning and we continue to talk about obedience and suffering and sorrow, that we would see the example of Christ and we would follow in his footsteps. And we would trust you more and we would love you more. So come and minister to us, Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I bet you know what I'm going to say next. Open your Bible with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, we have a table back here where we have some extras and we would love for you to have one of ours. Um, At Maricopa Springs, we want you to look at God's Word as we study it together, and we teach our way through it. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to focus in on verses 22 through 25 for the teaching today, but since these verses are so connected to what comes before them, I want us to go back to verse 18. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 25. The Apostle Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So beginning in verse 18, we've been looking at this the last couple of weeks. Peter is giving this command and making this argument that servants, or you could even use the word there, slaves, should be subject to their masters even when those masters are unjust and even cruel and abusive. Those servants should have respect for their masters. And we talked in detail last week about what a heavy command that is. 
It's the kind of thing that you might read and be like, yeah, the Bible can't really be serious here, so let's keep moving. You can always find that sermon on YouTube if you missed it and you want to listen to it. But the question is, why? Why should slaves be subject to their masters even when they're treated unjustly? And I think we can even expand the command here, right? We might look at this command and say, well, I'm not a slave, so this doesn't apply to me. You know, we can move on. It's irrelevant. But we could expand this command, I think, based on verses 18 through 21, to say that Christians as a whole, when they go through suffering and when they're enduring sorrow and injustice, that they should walk through that difficulty with grace and with goodness. So it does apply to you, whatever you might be going through. uh, These things would apply. And again, we should ask the question, why? Doesn't it seem like a strange thing for God to command that Christians would endure suffering and sorrow and hardship with a positive attitude, with Uh, an honorable approach to those hardships? Well, the answer that we're given in regards to the command is really simple, isn't it? It's the example of Jesus Christ. Why should Christians suffer well? Because our King and our Master suffered well. Jesus was mindful of God as he endured sorrows and suffered unjustly. And because the spirit of Christ now lives in us by faith in Jesus Christ, we can also endure sorrows and suffering in a way that honors God, giving God glory. We're called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Rick, I loved what you were saying in that imagery that you gave us. We are called to follow and endure hardship and sorrow and suffering and do it well because our Lord and Master suffered for us. Now, I think this might bring us to kind of an age-old question that people sometimes bring up and wrestle through. And that question is, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever wondered that yourself? Or have you ever been in a conversation where somebody is working through that question with you? Have you ever thought to yourself, why am I going through this hardship? I don't deserve this. I'm a good person. If God loves me, why would he make me go through something sorrowful or difficult like this? I seek to do what's good and what's right. So why am I having to endure this? Well, you need to understand that this is not at all how the Bible sees things. We want to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But the real question is, why do good things happen to anyone? That's the question. And these two questions, depending on which one you ask, reveals a lot about the way that you actually perceive the world and the way that you perceive humanity, human nature. If you think that people are naturally good in their hearts, then of course you're going to look at a world full of suffering and go, why do people have to go through suffering like this? Why do bad things happen to good people? But if you read the scriptures and you embrace what the Bible teaches about human nature, then you understand that 
people are by nature broken and evil. And the truly amazing thing is not that bad things happen to good people. The truly amazing thing is that in a world filled with so many corrupt hearts, that anything good at all happens to people. See, the truth is that we are guilty of evil, we're guilty of sin, we're guilty of injustice. We are the perpetrators of injustice, and we are by nature evil, which is precisely why Peter tells us that Jesus had to bear our sins in his body on the tree. And so actually what we should expect as we live our lives, unfortunately, is condemnation and sorrow and suffering that is the result of our sin. We should expect hardship to come our way because we are rebels against God and we've broken what he made. And so I just want you to note for a second here the goodness of God. Think about your life from this perspective. If you abandon the false notion that you are a good person who deserves a life that is easy and comfortable, and you embrace the truth that you are a wretched sinner standing before a holy God, what do you actually deserve from that God? You deserve condemnation. You deserve punishment. You deserve the consequences of your actions. You deserve nothing but sorrow and suffering. But what do you actually receive from God? Honestly, how good is your life? I mean, if for no other reason you could say you are living in America in the 21st century, how good is your life? The kindness that you have even been giving in the fact that you live. Existence is better than non-existence. You have been given life. You have breath in your lungs. The mercy of the sunrise took place for you this morning. You have a heartbeat. Life itself is a sweet gift from God, and you have received it by His grace because He is kind and merciful. And of course, beyond that, if you're a believer and you're sitting here this morning and your faith is in Jesus Christ, then you have received a gift that is better than life itself. You have been blessed with God's love proven for you in his son Jesus. You are a child of God. And what an indescribable kindness that is. So we need to rightly understand that before God, we have no claim on anything good. Even a slave who would say, my master is unjust, still has many things to rejoice and praise God for that are good that he has received from God. Because our God is a God of mercy. He lavishly pours out his kindness upon us and upon the whole earth in immeasurable, countless ways, minute by minute, day by day. And so the suffering and the sorrow that we do inevitably painfully experience in this life, it is so minuscule compared to the goodness of God. Now, I know when you focus on it, it seems massive, but when you compare it to the goodness and mercy and sweetness of Jesus, it is tiny by comparison. As my dad would often say, the vinegar comes in spoonfuls, but the honey comes in ladles, doesn't it? 
But if we must ask the question, why do bad things happen to Christian people who generally seek to do good things, why must we still suffer when we are trying desperately to fight sin and to live in righteousness? Maybe more specifically with this text, we might ask, why would a good slave who's a believer be beaten unjustly? Well, the answer is that sin has ruined everything. Unfortunately, there's not a part of this creation where sin has not brought its rot. And in a world that's ruined and stained by sin, the only remedy is Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. And God has called us, therefore, to be like His Son, Jesus, to endure suffering like He Himself suffered. And so verse 21 tells us, for to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So as a believer in this broken world, what God has ordained for us in following in the footsteps of Jesus is to follow him even into and through suffering. But again, why? Why does it have to be that way? Well, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Why must the Christian life include suffering, especially when we are doing good? Hebrews chapter 5, I think, in verse 8, actually gives us an answer here. In Hebrews 5.8, we are told, although he, that's Jesus, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So suffering was actually necessary for Jesus as a true man because suffering taught him obedience. That's a profound thought. And then for us as followers of Jesus, suffering is necessary because through our suffering, we learn to trust God. We learn to be obedient to his commands. So listen closely to me now because this is an absolutely vital point for you to understand as a Christian. As Christians, we do not suffer because God is punishing us. As Christians, we don't even suffer because ultimately sin has occurred. We suffer because it is God's will that we would suffer for our good. Do you believe that as a Christian? That it is God's will that you would suffer and that is for your good in this world. We suffer because God uses that suffering to teach us obedience and to increase our faith and trust in him, that we would follow where he leads us. We suffer so that we might learn not to be dependent on our own abilities, but so that we would learn to be dependent upon him in the midst of our sorrows and hardships, to cling to Christ. We suffer so that we might learn obedience. As a result, for the Christian then, this is what I would have you understand. 
all of your suffering is purposeful and redemptive. All of it. All of, a, all of our suffering for the Christian is ultimately moving us closer to God, which is where we need to be. Our suffering is not meaningless. It is not pointless, nor is it because God is displeased with us. He wants to make our life hard because we've displeased him. No, our suffering is God's tool for shaping us into the likeness of Jesus Christ in righteousness and holiness. In the specific example from 1 Peter chapter 2, where we have a slave who suffers under a master who is unjust and abusive, that slave then learns to do even more good and trust himself to God more fully, even though his earthly master is a bad master. Now, if you're still looking at that verse from Hebrews 5.8 and you're looking closely, then you might have a question in your, in your mind that sounds like this. If Jesus was the perfect son of God, why did he need to learn obedience? Right? Wasn't he already obedient? Isn't that what it means to be perfect? Flip back to 1 Peter chapter 2, because I want you to see a verse that we read, verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, He, that's Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So verse 22 helps us understand an important theological point about Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus when it comes to his suffering. Jesus did not suffer in order to learn obedience because he was disobedient. His suffering was not corrective in nature to teach him something that he was failing to do. That's true for us. Your suffering is corrective in nature. It is purifying in nature. We are by nature disobedient to God, and so suffering teaches us not to trust our own will and our own devices, but to trust Him in obedience. But Peter reminds us that in this way, Jesus is not like you. He's not like me. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. His suffering was not the result of corrective measures brought forth by God in his life. Verse 21 tells us Christ suffered for us. That's why he suffered. Yet Jesus did learn obedience in the sense that he did everything that God commanded, and in doing what God commanded, he trusted God along the way. That's obedience. He learned to trust God more and more. It's not that Jesus disobeyed and then as a result he suffered and that suffering taught him obedience. No, Jesus obeyed God and his obedience brought suffering, but that taught him to continue to trust God even through the suffering. There's a bit of a mystery here in the nature of Jesus, I admit to you, being both fully God and fully man. But the point that Peter is making is that Jesus really did suffer injustice. He suffered injustice like you will never suffer injustice because he never committed any sin that made him deserve to go through sorrow or suffering. 
Maybe we could think of it a little bit like a child or even a little bit like the illustration that Rick gave us, a child who learns obedience um, not by first being disobedient, but rather a child who when his father says do this, he does it and in doing it learns to be obedient. So Jesus always walked the path of obedience. He never faltered. But for us, we learn obedience as we stumble down this path of suffering. As God uses our suffering and our sorrow as a corrective tool to straighten out our behavior while we grow in faithfulness, following in the footsteps of Jesus. And in this sense, I want you to know that sorrow and suffering are necessary for us as Christians because they are teachers. They instruct us in the way of Jesus that we might better follow in his steps. But I want to be very clear about a point that Peter makes in verse 22 that is um, not contradicted by Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, okay? Tragically, there was a survey done by George Barna back in 2015 where they asked Americans what they think about Jesus. And uh, more than 50% of Americans back in 2015 held the belief that Jesus was not sinless. More than 50% of Americans believe that Jesus committed sin in his life. Another tragic survey done by Ligonier Ministries just last year um, asked Americans what they believe about Jesus, and more than 50% of Americans don't believe that he was even God. Okay, because how do you understand a man who is sinless, who claims to be God, who's also a man, right? But more than 50% of Americans don't believe Jesus was God. Verse 22 teaches us to think rightly about Jesus. And I want to make sure that 100% of people at Maricopa Springs believe this truth. It's essential as a Christian you understand Jesus was absolutely perfect. He never committed a single sin over the entirety of his life. He never did anything in any moment of his life that was displeasing to God the Father. Verse 22 tells us he never spoke a single word that was deceitful. All of his deeds, all of his words, all of his thoughts were righteous, just, and true, and good. Jesus was suffering not for his own sin. He suffered for our sin. And consider the weight of his perfect sinless life, my friends. How long do you think you can go without sinning? Like maybe if you tried really, really, really hard, maybe you could make it a day? Most of you are like, no, not a chance. I appreciate your honesty. Jesus lived his entire life in perfect obedience to the will of God every moment, never faltering. Doesn't that sound almost, I mean, it sounds unbelievable, but it's true. This is what the scriptures tell us. Every time the temptation came his way to deny God's will and do his own will, to go his own way, every single time, Jesus chose to do the will of God, his Father. And this is because his heart 
was fully aligned with the heart of God. Jesus wanted nothing more than to please his Father. And so in every decision, that's what he did. And this is the kind of creatures that we're actually being transformed into through our sorrow and our suffering. We're being transformed into creatures who would say, when I go my own way, it's a disaster. And so I will choose to go towards God's will where there is fresh, still waters and peaceful pastures and joy and contentment. I will choose obedience in the footsteps of Jesus. And think about what a monumental work this is that God has to do in your life. Um, I've maybe told this illustration before, but I think uh, it's a good one. Dallas Willard has this thought experiment where he asks that if, you, if I could offer you a pill right now that you could take, you could swallow it right now, and you would never again tell another lie in your life, would you take that pill? Would you really? Would you want to go through life without the power to maybe mislead here or there when it's absolutely necessary, right? When you show up 15 minutes late to work and you blame it on the traffic when in reality your car has the Starbucks cup. Does it even sound like a blessing to you to be able to go through life unable to tell another lie? Does that sound like a blessing? Dallas Willard goes on to tell the story of a little girl who in Sunday school uh, was asked, what is a lie? And her response was, well, a lie is an abomination to God and an ever-present help in times of trouble. <laughs> the work that God is doing in us through our hardship and our suffering is the work of teaching us obedience so that we might look to God to be our ever-present help in times of trouble and not to the fleshy things of sin, like deceit or desire or self-centeredness. Suffering produces that kind of obedience. And you should honestly ask yourself whether you even really want this kind of life. Do you want a kind of life where God will purge from you all of your disordered desires, where God will purge from you all of your deceit, all of your selfishness? Do you really want the kind of life where you are called into suffering to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? That's the invitation. Are you seriously committed to the path of Christ where you would actually give up sin and deceit? Or what about verse 23? Do you want this kind of life? When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do you really want the kind of life where when somebody mocks you and reviles you, you have given up the ability to return with reviling? Do you really want a life of sexual purity? Do you really want a life of self-control? 
Do you really even want to be the kind of person who's actually patient and kind? Does that sound beautiful to you? Are things like truth and righteousness actually attractive to you? Or do they sound kind of burdensome to you? Does forgiving those who wrong you or enduring injustice because you actually do good, does that sound like the blessed life to you? The reason I ask is because we are being called into the footsteps of Jesus, and this is what it looks like. And we have to admit that it's quite contrary to our natural state of affairs, isn't it? I mean, there's probably some moments where you're like, man, if that's the life, I don't know. The truth is, the way of Jesus will be the death of you. The way of Jesus will be the death of you. It will mean that the person that you are who deceives, the person that you are who is proud, the person that you are who lusts, the person who you are that's greedy, that gets defensive and is selfish, that person is going to have to die if you will follow Jesus Christ. Verse 24 tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin. The anger and lust, the greed and jealousy, the enmity and hatred, all of you that loves and cherishes what is rotten and ugly and sinful, it needs to die. It has to die in following Jesus Christ. And all of you, are, and again, I would tell you that if you choose to follow Jesus seriously, then the way of Jesus will be the death of you. But it will also be the life of Christ in you. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Seriously following the way of Jesus, by the grace of God, you will actually become truly, in time, a person who is really like Jesus, who can take those big steps in the footprints of your Father, forgiving those who wrong you, blessing those who hate you, loving those who persecute you, serving those who are selfish, giving to those who are needy. Does that sound actually attractive to you? Now, it's not as if you're going to get totally screwed or taken advantage of. I mean, you will in the short term. Peter tells us, though, in verse 22, that Jesus entrusted himself to God who judges justly, which means that in the end, after all of your sorrow and suffering, on judgment day, God will sort it all out. God will reward all those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give to them eternal life. What a reward that is. He will bind up our wounds. He will put a healing salve on the bruises that we've suffered as we've been abused. He will comfort our sorrows and he will encourage us by telling us, well done, I'm proud of you. God who judges justly at the end of all of the sorrow and suffering, he will set everything right. And it was that truth that allowed Jesus to endure the suffering that he went through. 
See, through human history, many people have skirted justice, human justice. Don't we even see this today? Where we hear these news stories about some obvious criminal getting off and some innocent person who ends up suffering? Through human history, people have avoided human laws and human justice. That's true. Evil men have prevailed. But nobody has ever managed to avoid to avoid forever the all-seeing eye of God, the all-knowing mind of God. And this is the truth that Jesus knew. Jesus could give himself over to abuse and injustice for a time because he was absolutely certain of the justice of God. And in the short term, how did it work out for him? Really not good. Right? He was mocked, he was abused, he was arrested, he was tried, he was crucified, murdered. But in the long term, how did it work out for him? It could not possibly have gone better. Our Lord was raised from death to life, crowned with all glory and honor and authority by God the just. And so who would you rather entrust yourself to? Seriously, your own pathetic power when you try to take matters into your own hands How has that gone for you, typically? Or would you rather entrust yourself to the authority of God who is over all? Since God is the only ultimate authority, then let us joyfully and boldly entrust ourselves to his care and to his justice, whatever the short-term consequences of that might be. And honestly, what other alternative is there? Where else are you going to go to get justice except to the God who rewards those who trust him? So God judges justly, and now Peter gives us a picture of what that looks like in verses 24 to 25. Friends, how do we know that God is trustworthy? I mean, one of the natural experiences of being human is is the fear of trusting people, isn't it? Because we've been broken and wounded and mistreated. Well, how do we know that God deserves our trust? Maybe more specifically based on this text, how does a slave know that if he looks to God instead of his master, he won't just be further abused by the injustice of God himself? Or to say it maybe one other way, how do we know that if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we entrust ourselves to the justice of God? How do we know that we're not going to get screwed? Well, Peter tells us by showing us what God is like. Verse 24. This is the God that I'm inviting you to trust. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore your sins in his body on the tree in order that you might die to sin and live to righteousness, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, and he has received you. Look, this God, he has every right to condemn and destroy us. And yet he has proven that he will accept us. He's proven that he's worthy of our trust. 
Because he gave his son to show how far he would go in extending grace and love. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, God has expressed his justice in condemning sin and his love in accepting sinners. Our sin was punished and Jesus bore that punishment and God's love was displayed because he punished his own son so that we might be spared that punishment that we deserve. What could possibly keep you from trusting a God like this? Why would you be afraid that he might mistreat you or abuse you when he has shown the extravagance of his love in this way? He invites you into obedience because he is trustworthy. What could possibly cause us to turn away from a God who would not spare his only beloved son in order that we might be saved? How do we know that we can trust this God and that his intentions toward us are good? Well, in this exchange, the life of Christ for your life, God has proven his love. And more than that, he's opened up to you a possibility of a new kind of life. The life of righteousness that belonged to Jesus and now belongs to you is possible in obedience to him. And verse 20, or as verse 24 says, he died not only so that we could be forgiven, but so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And because of this exchange now, we do not die in our sin, we die to our sin. And we do not live life in sin, we live life in righteousness. And ponder for a moment what an astounding inversion this is. I mean, if you think that being a slave of a master who's a tyrant is bad, and it is bad, consider this for a second. Jesus, who is the master and who is good, submitted himself to the slaves who are tyrants. And what did they do to him? He turned himself over to the will of the creatures and we abused him, we made him suffer injustice, and we ultimately killed him. And by his wounds we've been healed. Healed from our sin, healed from our rebellion, healed from our selfishness, healed from our hard-heartedness. And this is what motivates us. Our king and our master gave his life so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is the example that we follow. Our God who willingly subjected himself to our abuse so that we might receive from him love and compassion the healing of the wounds of our sin. We were like sheep straying away from him. Straying away from the safety of the good shepherd out into the murderous world. And Christ, the great shepherd, placed himself between us and the danger, taking upon himself the danger in order that we might be kept in his love and his grace. So here's one more question for you. You are a sheep. That's what scripture teaches. And as a sheep, whose authority would you rather be under? 
Whose friendship would you prefer? The friendship of the shepherd or the friendship of the butcher? Do you want to be a friend of a butcher as a sheep? Sin entices us. It deceives us. It leads us to believe that it has our best good in mind. It leads us to believe that it's a friend of the sheep. And in truth, it's a butcher. All the while, Christ, the good shepherd, calls us and invites us into his safety, into his love, into his care. The way of the butcher out there is violence and bloodshed and murder and injustice. The way of the good shepherd, by contrast, is peace and healing and life and justice. And all that we need to do to come under the care of the shepherd and be out from the shadow of the butcher is simply following the footsteps of Christ through sorrow and suffering into the heart of the Father. And there's the gospel. It's right there in verse 24, if it isn't already clear. Not only that we are forgiven and that since we owe a great debt, we should follow Jesus where he leads us, but also that the life of Christ is our life. The fullness of the gospel is that forgiveness of sins is ours through Jesus and that transforms you into a new creation that can walk in the way of Jesus so that you can turn to the shepherd and overseer of your soul that he might rule your life and make your life like his life. So then we get all the way back to the beginning. Peter is not merely saying that God's expectation for us is that we would sorrow or suffer sorrow and injustice. Peter's telling us that the life of Christ is possible. The example he gave for us is for us to follow because we belong to the shepherd and his power is alive and active in us.